So, over the last few weeks, we have been in Genesis 1 to 3. We've spent two weeks on each of the chapters, and today we are in chapter 4. And from now on, we're going to motor a bit through the chapters. And so I'm going to read to us in a moment, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and its power, and we pray this morning that you would help us to be open to hearing what it is you are saying to each and every one of us. Would you shape us, mold us, move us, change us as a people, that we might be more like you and reflect your glory. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 4. You can follow it on the screen or in your Bibles. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and, to Irad the, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other named Zillah, and Ada, sorry, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in the tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naima. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. 
If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I find if you're reading the Old Testament and you don't know what a name should sound like, just say it confidently and people will believe that you're saying it correctly. It's a little trick. Um, uh, So uh, the title of this morning's talk is Am I My Brother's Keeper? It's a question on more than one occasion I feared one of my sons might say back to me when I ask him, where is your brother? It's a question asked by Cain. And it's important when we come to this text that we understand that the Hebrew name Cain means something close to the English word owner. So the response um, to human rejection of intimacy with God in the garden is a human whose name is owner. So it is as if the opposite of intimacy with God is ownership and protection of what we have. And that manifests itself in Cain's life. When he comes before God, he brings almost an afterthought of what he has grown from the ground before God. In the course of time, he brought an offering before the Lord. Whereas his brother Abel brought fat portions from the first fruits. Cain, the owner, different to Abel. And of course, his reaction isn't great. Um, he is offended, and God comes to him and says, why are you angry and downcast? And Cain explains why, and God gives him a warning and said, sin is crouching at your door. Be careful to rule over sin. And, um, and then he entices his brother out into the field and um, kills him. So if you think EastEnders is the kind of the first example of of dirty human living, um, or Game of Thrones, it's in the Bible um, pretty much from the get-go. And and when God comes to Cain and asks him, where is your brother, there's a, a, a change in tone. When God comes to Adam and Eve and says, um, where are you? Um, and, and asks them what's happened, Adam doesn't deny that he's done something wrong. He just shifts responsibility onto Eve. Yeah? In this moment, Cain just denies any sense of moral responsibility whatsoever. Am I my brother's keeper? Why should I do anything good? What is wrong with killing my brother? It's almost as if the first Darwinian ethicist is in Genesis chapter 4, that actually the survival of the fittest begins early on in the story of God's people. It's a story that is so important 
to the people of God. That because it echoes through the ages of human experience. So if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find some prominent figures who deny moral responsibility. Moses, when he kills the man who's persecuting one of his fellow Israelites. David, when he's trying to get himself out of a moral mess, having slept with Bathsheba. You can go through the leaders of the Old Testament and you can see that this is a story that is true. That we don't take responsibility for our actions in the sight of God. It's hardwired into the human condition, not just to pass the buck, but actually when the pressure comes to deny that we have done anything wrong in the first place. Uh, If we're honest, people do this today. It's easy to look at events in Syria and point the finger at different parties for doing whatever suits them. It's awkward to look closer to home and ask why we've taken only 20,000 refugees as a country when there are 70 million worldwide. It's even harder to ask how a city of so much wealth can allow almost 100 people to sleep on the streets each night. This passage tells us that it's hardwired into our condition to be like Cain, to be asking, am I my brother's keeper? But there was another one who came who was different. Who was different. I've got the wrong page in my notes, so I'm just going to have to remember this one. Um, uh, When Jesus came in in Luke chapter 15, um, he's dining with sinners and tax collectors, and the religious leaders are asking him, why are you doing that? Why are you spending time? They're asking a question about um, people's moral responsibility. What, 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 What is it that you're doing? And Jesus has three stories for them that provide three answers. He tells a story of how, um, how a shepherd who has 99 sheep would still go after the one lost on the hillside. That, that what it means to be um, a good shepherd is to go for the one who is lost. And that's his explanation to the religious leaders. I'm here for the lost. But then he tells a story about how a woman who has um, 10 coins in her house and loses one will turn upside down the whole house in order to find the one coin that is lost inside the house. And in saying that, he is correcting the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders by saying to them, you can be in the house and lost as well. You can be in the house and lost as well. So you may be in the house of Israel, but you're lost because you've lost sight of the heart and the purposes of God. And then he tells a story about a son who asks to take his father's inheritance and goes and squanders it in a far-off land. And then comes home and is received by the father joyfully. 
and the fatted calf is sacrificed and they have a feast. And at the end of the story, you hear the father engaging with the older son who's moaning about why this has happened. And this is a story that in that culture challenges what the older brother does because in that culture, the older brother goes and finds the younger brother and brings him home. The older brother goes and finds the younger brother and brings him home. And so in that story, there is a corrective to the Pharisees and the tax collectors in that Jesus is saying, actually, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you coming and fetching people who are lost and bringing them home? And he's pointing to himself as the true and better older brother who comes for the lost and brings them home. Okay? So then what happens is he doesn't just tell us that that's what he's doing. He then goes to a cross. And at that cross... He dies to save us from our sins. He cries out from that cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The Son of God cries to the Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And with his last breath, he cries out, it is finished. Okay? And in the wonderful mystery, which we will never fully understand this side of eternity of what went on at the cross, we can grasp onto some simple, basic truths about what is happening. In that moment, Jesus is making a way back to the Father for us, because the sin that separates us from God and the consequences and punishment of that are laid upon him, and we, through faith in him, can receive that peace in our lives. We receive that peace in our lives. We receive pardon and forgiveness as we place our faith and our trust in him. We have a way back. He has made a way back to the Father. When I wrote that bit last night, I had to stop and I had to pause and just say, thank you. It's a real thing. It's not a concept. It's true. Okay, where, where Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And nobody after him said anything but that. Jesus said, yes. Jesus said, I am the keeper of my brothers and sisters. As one um, theologian said, the son of God became a son of man so that the children of men, forgive the old language, it was about 1,600 years ago, could become the children of God. The son of God became the son of man so that the children of men could become the children of God. This is the amazing, glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has said that he is his brother's keepers. Keeper, sorry. Get the plural in the right place. So, um, what does that mean? Well, 
It means that we, because of Christ, we don't have to live like Cain. We can be Christians. Because of Christ, we don't have to live like Cain. We can be Christians. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then actually your life can be changed. And it can be changed by asking Christ to come and live in you. And when you do that, and we're going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I don't, I don't know everyone here, so I don't know whether you're a Christian, but we'd like to give people the opportunity to do that. When you do that, what happens is that Christ comes into you and he begins to reorder you. So there's a little bit of spelling here for you, and I hope you get the idea. Um, that, that actually, um, uh, if you take um, Christ and put it into Cain, you get Christine. Does that make sense? You have to forget the C in, in Christ. Yeah? Um, uh, but in order for it to make Christian, there's an internal reordering of the I and the A. I apologize if, if um, that's too complicated for you. It was too complicated for a member of my whole household last night. Um, uh, th- there's an internal reordering. And that is what happens when we receive Christ. There is an internal reordering of our lives. He comes and he comes into us and he changes. He changes the way that we think. Okay, so my, um, my son Jacob, when he was first at secondary school, a few months in, he was experiencing a bit of difficulty with older boys who were bullying him. And we then had a foster child come to us who went to the same school, who was very cool and very good at football, and made friends with all the football, fa- football players. So all of a sudden, Jacob had a minder in the playground. And whenever the year eight boys came along and stole his football and kicked it over the fence, the year 10 boys would turn up and point out to the year eight boys where they needed to go and pick up the ball and who they needed to give it back to. Suddenly, Jacob's life at school changed because he had a handler for him. Yeah, uh, and, and that, as we receive Christ, we begin to see the world differently because we have him, okay? But it's not in the kind of antagonistic playground sense that I've just, that, that don't apply that illustration. It doesn't work as an analogy at every level, okay? Um, but we don't just see it differently we act in a power that is different. Christ on the cross overcame the curse of sin and death. And he gave us access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And that same power which raised him from the dead comes to us as we profess faith in him. So it doesn't just change the way that we think, it changes the way that we live, and that power defeats the world and its sin and its curse, so that we love in a way that is transformative. Okay? So... What will happen is, as you hear things like the video about tread, 
or you look at the news and you hear about the problems that we've got with the environment, or the refugee crisis, or the fact that there are over 60,000 children in need of a permanent home in this country. There are countless issues where there is need, where that question, are you your brother's stroke sister's keeper, comes to us. It comes to us, doesn't it? And our response is yes. Not to every single one. We can't solve all of them. So what we do is we go to Christ for the sight to see which problems he is calling us to respond to. It is a heresy if you don't know what that word is, come and talk to me afterwards. It is a heresy to believe that you are a one-person church and you can fix all the problems. We are a body and we are going to participate with one another in responding to the problems of the world and we're going to do that differently and we're already doing that. And if you're here and you're not part of this church, you are most welcome to get involved. There's plenty to do. We respond to those problems by asking God to show us, to give us sight, to know how we can get involved. But then we ask him for the power to then engage in those problems so that it is his power, his resurrection power, not our power, not our might, but his spirit alone that is at work in and through us to change those circumstances. Because of Christ, we don't have to live like Cain. We can be a Christian.